0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's I'm
0: Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. David Ray Griffin and Dr. Peter Phillips. Today's show, a question and answer session with Dr. Griffin on the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center 7, and Dr. Phillips on The Truth Emergency in Media Coverage. David Ray Griffin is a prolific author, theologian, and lecturer. For the past several years, he has committed himself to exposing the fraud of the official story of the attacks of September 11th. He is author of The New Pearl Harbor, The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions, Christian Faith and the Truth Behind 9-11, Debunking 9-11 Debunking, An Answer to Popular Mechanics and Other Defenders of the Official Conspiracy Theory, 9-11 Contradictions, The New Pearl Harbor Revisited, Osama Bin Laden, Dead or Alive, and his very latest, The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7, why the final official report about 9-11 is unscientific and false. We begin with Dr. Griffin, taking questions after his keynote address at the 5th Annual 9-11 Film Festival in Oakland, California on September 10, 2009. David Ray Griffin. Is it true that the World Trade Center 7 Inquiry was forced to choose between, one, collapse due to fire, two, collapse due to the U.S. government? thus implicitly excluding three, collapse due to demolition, not necessarily by the U.S. government.
2: Um, yes, I mean, uh, you know, you can feel a certain uh, uh, sympathy for the people at NIST, insofar so you can feel sympathy for people who are covering up mass murder and treason, uh, to see that these people, to, to keep their jobs, had to do something that they knew was false. Um, here they are, they're scientists, they know that steel frame buildings can't come down uh, at free-fall speed, and certainly, you know, you've seen the building, Uh, it's perfectly solid, uh, stable, and then just comes down symmetrically, that means all 82 columns had to be removed simultaneously, and see, that's what uh, Sunder was saying when he was saying it took time because Uh, These things didn't happen all at once. It wasn't instantaneous. Things happened sequentially. That's their theory, a theory of progressive collapse. But when you look at the building, you see there's no progression there. It's all simultaneous, um, starting down. And so uh, they know what the situation is, but, as I stressed, they're an agency of the Commerce Department and therefore an agency of the Bush-Cheney administration. They cannot possibly say that explosives brought the building down. Now you might say, well, why not? Couldn't you just say, and I've actually had some people say this to me, say, oh, well, Al-Qaeda got in there and put the explosives in there. Can you imagine a bunch of Arabs getting in there during working hours or during the night and uh, for the hours uh, it would take to plant explosives in the building? No, it, it had to be an inside job, planting the explosives, um, And, uh, and of course, most people here know that uh, you can answer the question, how did the government get in there, or how did people working for the government get in there, when you know that um, a guy named Marvin Bush was involved with a security company uh, in charge of security for the World Trade Center. The Bush cousin, Wirt Walker III, was the CEO of this company, Securicom. When you know that uh, a fellow named uh, Larry Silverstein, had uh, either owned or had taken out a lease on all of these buildings. So we know how, how people from the inside could have gotten in, but the idea that Al-Qaeda could have got So you have to exclude the possibility, if you're going to keep your job at NIST, uh, that, that explosives were used. And so they waited as long as they could. They kept delaying year after year after year until the Bush-Cheney uh, administration was virtually out of office, they probably expected they might get a little more flack for the report because it's so obviously false. But, of course, the press just bowled over and said, yeah, the mystery has been solved. Um, But this fellow who's the uh, kind of whistleblower who used to work for NIST, he says, you know, I've still got some friends there, and they don't like what they're doing, but to keep their jobs, they've got to do it.
0: What was Giuliani's excuse for abandoning his World Trade Center 7 bunker in the first place? They apparently left it even before the second plane hit.
2: Um, I don't know that he ever gave uh, a reason for leaving other than just, um, you know, it was very dangerous to (laughs) have here's a plane hit a building right next to it. The whole idea of this bunker was that it was supposed to be a secure place that would stand up no matter what. It was uh, completely uh, airproof so you know no dust could have gotten in there. Uh, it had its air conditioning system. So uh, at least until maybe the electricity went out, they would have had no reason. And yet, as the questioner says, they left before the South Tower had hit, which is the time, evidently, the electricity went out. So, uh, you know, we know these things about Giuliani. He um, admitted uh, on public TV, talking to uh, Peter Jennings, that he knew in advance the Twin Towers were going to come down. Put yourself back in that situation. No steel frame building in our universe had ever come down because of fires or any external cause other than explosives. Why in the world would have anybody thought that the Twin Towers were going to come down? They wouldn't have, and we've got the testimonies of people, the firefighters, and they said, we all knew these buildings couldn't come down, and yet they came down anyway. But. Giuliani knew. It was also when the word started going out uh, very early in the day that World Trade Center 7 was going to come down. When you trace back the stories um, in these uh, reports, the testimonies by the uh, members of the New York uh, uh, Fire Department, it goes back to it was the people in Giuliani's uh, office, his emergency management center, who started the report that World Trade Center was going to come down. So... We know why they left the building, <laughs> and it looks like, and I discuss this in the appendix to my book because it, it's speculative. The the main part of my book deals with simply the, uh, the, the falsity of the uh, NIST report. But in my appendix, I do deal with the question of uh, sort of what really happened and why was this uh, explosion that Barry Jennings reported why would an explosion occurred so early in the morning before nine thirty evidently uh, if the building wasn 't going to come down until five twenty one well, it looks like the building was supposed to come down at uh, ten forty five that morning uh, shortly you know just about seventeen minutes after the North tower came down at that time the the dust in the air was so thick we would not have had any of these video. Uh, We wouldn't have had any photographs or anything of Building 7 coming down. It would all obscure. In fact, the camera people hadn't even come back yet. The air was so dense. And so, you know, people would have uh, come back and just said, oh, Building 7 came down too. What a mystery. And uh, it would not have become the Achilles heel of the official story because we wouldn't have these videos that show that it was a classic uh, controlled, you know, bottom starting from the bottom, implosion. And uh, so it looks like what they had to do is go back in, send people back in, uh, some people to try to get the system back, and other people to set fires in the building so that the cover story could be, oh, fires brought it down. So one of the things I report in the book is the discrepancy between the official story, which is that all the fires in the building started at 1028 when the North Tower came down and sent debris over there, some of it flaming uh, debris, uh, steel beams, and and columns—they're flaming—that set fires in World Trade Center Seven. Um, so that means all the fires had to start at ten twenty-eight, and uh, they admit there was no evidence of uh, vertical, you know, movement of fire from floor to floor, just horizontally on each floor, and. Um, and then they claimed that the fires in the building, and the reporters just reported this with a straight face, uh, the, fi- the fires burned for seven hours, because so that means they started at 10.28, and they went to 5.21. Well, when you trace it back, you see uh, there was no fire that burned even four hours, and some of the fires, on, uh, on like on one of the floors, burned only 40 minutes, and... Um, They had no evidence that, uh, you know, the first fire they said that was visible on a certain floor would have been at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. And the idea is, you know, there were supposed to be fires in there since 1028, but cameras focused on the building. And the fires would have been, of course, right by the windows. Cameras didn't see any of these fires. But, yeah, they were burning away for several hours before they came visible. So the whole thing is just so obviously uh, false. And uh, this, this, this hypothesis uh, suggests what the problem is, that people were going in there on different floors at different times and, and starting fires. So uh, it's all very fascinating. Um, it's speculation, but it is speculation that uh, takes account of all the facts, one of those facts being that a reporter, a British reporter, went running down the street at 1045 saying a 50-story building has just come down. And uh, it may be that there was another big explosion at that time, because um, another thing that hadn 't been reported was that there was enormous gash in the south side of the building, and they made sure that all the cameras uh, kept uh, kept away from that um, but uh, uh, Silverstein, uh, not being the uh, you know brightest bulb on the string, uh, he revealed that he mentioned that enormous <laughs> gash in the building. Just as uh, he mentioned, you know, after uh, he had said, "Well, we decided to pull it," and then his people had come out and tried to cover and said, "Well, when he said pull it, he just meant pull the contingency of firefighters, pull the contingent of firefighters out of the building." And then when he Silverstein is talking to, uh, uh, responding to some, "We are change people," uh, he says that uh, when he and the fire commandant made this decision. Uh, to pull the building, it was—I uh, think he said—two uh, thirty in the afternoon. Well, everybody knows all the firefighters were pulled out by one o'clock. Silverstein undermined the story that his own people had put out to uh, save him from his pullit uh, statement. So these were not geniuses; they made so many mistakes. That I've said this many times. You know, people have said, "Oh, you think the Bush administration did this? They were so incompetent; they couldn't pull off something like this." Absolutely right. They were so incompetent, they couldn't have pulled off something that wouldn't have been discovered within a day or two if the mainstream press had been doing one-tenth of a decent job uh, reporting the facts.
0: Why was the World Trade Center 7 collapse necessary, given subsequent need for desperate lies to explain away explosives?
2: Well, first of all, uh, you wrote the question before I just gave uh, that part of the answer, which was I think uh, it was it was meant to come down earlier, so they wouldn't have needed uh, such desperate straits to uh, try to explain uh, why it came down in free fall for part of the time and uh, vertically, completely symmetrically, and so on. Um, but uh, that question is quite often raised, and, and and many people have come up with many many answers. Uh, Uh, One answer was, uh, you know, maybe floor 23 was where uh, uh, the controls were for remote control guiding the uh, planes into the Twin Towers. Another answer has to do with the various uh, agencies uh, that had uh, vital documents in the building. And so that's been put forth as a motive. Um, I think we can just say and make a more general statement that here you obviously had, um, or at least it's obvious to me, a cooperation between Washington and New York. And so if you're going to get the New York people on board to do uh, what needs to be done, they've got to get something out of it. So you can't explain everything by, you know, the, the new Pearl Harbor, the need for a catastrophic and catalyzing event so that we can attack uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and enormously raised the military budget. Those were Washington concerns. Those were neocon concerns. But New York, had his own concerns, said, okay, well, you, we need to do this and this and this. So, um, you know, Silverstein uh, made, uh, I think, over $7 billion on this, so there would be a little motivation right there.
0: You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, question and answer session with David Ray Griffin on the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center 7. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I saw the National Geographic show, which included you. They did everything they could to make you look like a kook, including playing space alien music when you spoke. Are there any plans to make a, quote, debunking 9-11, debunking video? <laughs>
2: oh, that show included me? I, I didn't notice. Um, you know, these guys were so deceitful. It's just beyond belief. Um, you know, the way they came in and they were going to do this really serious show give us a chance to state our case and all of that. And then um, they brought us in, uh, three of us, uh, Richard Gage, myself, and, and Dylan Avery, uh, to view the next to final cut. And they said, all we're going to add now is just viewing you and your responses to to what we've done. And uh, uh, Stephen Jones was not there. And uh, because he was on vacation and he couldn't come, he said he could come later if they did it later, but no, they had to do it now. And so he said, okay, bring Kevin Ryan. And evidently they contacted him, but then quit and uh, he didn't hear any more from them. And then what they did was do these three um, scientific <laughs> experiments that are just uh, ridiculous, and then ask us to comment on them. Well, none of us are scientists. We said some pretty intelligible things. Now, I have to tell you, I have not actually seen uh, this this show. I mean, I saw it then, but I haven't seen what they showed on TV. And from what I understand, it's very different from what we saw. Because what we saw, we were pretty happy with, except for those experiments. That's when it all turned sour from our point of view. But early on, they had, they had a lot of footage of me. Um, I, had said, I had made some pretty good comments, I thought. And uh, they had kept in. And I was pretty amazed they allowed me to say that. And they allowed Richard to say several uh, important things and there was no sign they were going to rebut them well no they didn't rebut them it's just when they did the final cut they just eliminated all that and uh and now this is the first time i've heard about the space alien music but sure they do that all the time you know tinkle 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 when uh, uh you want to show somebody's a conspiracy theorist you know so uh, uh how many actually read the letters that uh, Stephen Jones published on 9-11 Blogger between himself and, uh, and Robert Erickson, who, who ran this show? Oh, you haven't seen those? Well, let me tell you. Go on there. It was about uh, 10 days ago, I think now. And you can read these exchanges and see that uh, we were raising extremely serious questions about the credibility of these three so-called experiments, and particularly the, uh, well, two of them, Um, how many of you saw the National Geographic show? Oh, not very many, actually. Well, let me tell you what they did. Um, They took a piece of steel about this long and about this thick and put it over a blazing fire that would have been, you know, the hottest they could get it. It would have been 1,800 or, or more. Uh, I think they even said maybe 2,000, because that's what they think. Oh, they say, oh, sure, that's what the fires in the building were. Um, well, the, the, the columns in the building were enormous. And here you got a little tiny piece of steel, And then the main thing, and I had stressed this in my answer, so they they quoted me, and I assume they kept this in the final thing. I said, there's simply no way that fire could have caused those buildings to collapse in the way they did. And at that point then, they do this experiment, and they show, science shows this isn't true. And uh, the point I had been making was about the conductivity of steel. That steel is a pretty good conductor of uh, heat. And so if you've got uh, a long piece of steel and you start heating up this section, you're not going to get that section anywhere close to the temperature of the fire because the heat is going to disperse. And then if that beam is connected to other beams, the heat is going to spread to those. Well, in the in these buildings, these were enormous buildings with uh, just an enormous amount of interconnected steel. So the idea that any of the steel in the building could have gotten up even to the point where it started to lose um, strength, let alone getting up to the point where what NIST implied with the Twin Towers that they got up to the point where they lost 90% of the strength. They had absolutely no empirical evidence of anything like that. They had no empirical evidence that the steel had even gotten up to the point where it would lose 1% of its strength. And uh, that's because of this. Uh, you, you had some pretty big big fires in uh, the towers, uh, but the temperature would have been dispersed. And uh, they just ignored all that. Just took this little tiny piece of steel, put an enormously hot fire right under it. So I mean, the fire is literally encompassing the steel, and what any of us would have predicted, of course, pretty soon it gets so hot that it sags, um, and they use that then to prove, yeah, a fire could have brought the building down symmetrically at freefall. <laughs> you know, that was, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, junk science. Uh, this, this is not even junk science. Uh, that, that would be. Uh, an honorific term for this, and then the the other one um, that that we spent even more time on was the the one about uh, the nanothermite, and uh, so Stephen says he had explained to Robert the interviewed him over and over and in great detail the difference between ordinary thermite and uh, nanothermite incendiary high explosive, also the difference between Ordinary thermite and then thermate, which has sulfur added to it so it would make steel melt at a much lower temperature. And then the idea that if you were going to use thermite or thermate to melt steel, you would have to have a shaped charge to direct the energy that just putting uh, ordinary thermite next to steel wouldn't, wouldn't do anything. What did Robert do? He took a bag of ordinary thermite, put it up against a steel column, and set it on fire. And that was his proof that nanothermite could not have brought down the buildings. And we explained to him, that's completely irrelevant. You've got to talk about nanothermite. And he says, well, I can't get nanothermite. Only the military has that, you know. <laughs> and and uh, he didn't actually say that, but he, he knew it. He, I mean, he said, I couldn't get nanothermite. And that's true. Ordinary citizens can't. Um, and so he says, well, you know, we had to use what we had and because uh, the audience has to see it. They, they can't just talk to him. You've got to show him. And so we had to show him. And so, so I'd, give, I'd written a little uh, thing to him, and I said, okay, let's say you come here from uh, another country and you've never seen baseball, and you see this enormous baseball park, and you hear about this guy named Barry Bonds who hits the ball clear out of the park, and you say, that's impossible. And these fans say... Oh, no, it happens. And you say, these fans, uh, let's call them fanatics. And we were making fun of his truthers. Uh, these fanatics think you can do this. And so I'm going to show they couldn't. So uh, I'm going to do the demonstration myself. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, Barry Bonds. I'm not very muscular and, you know, I haven't been taking my uh, steroids. But, uh, you know, I can swing a bat But we didn't have a a real baseball bat available, so um, I used a whiffle bat, and we didn't have a real baseball, so I used a whiffle ball, and um, there I proved Barry Bonds could absolutely not hit a baseball out of the park. That was essentially what they did in that show.
0: People have many questions here. Building 7 was built and managed by the real estate giant Tishman Speyer. T.S. also rebuilt Building 7, which has reopened. T.S. is headed by Jerry Speyer, who is a close friend of Larry Silverstein's and David Rockefeller, and a member of the CFR, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderberg Group. He is also a committed Zionist. There is more, but suffice to say, isn't it time for a closer look at Jerry Speyer and his firm.
2: Sounds like it. <laughs> By the way, is that the right pronunciation? Or do Probably you know? Not. Is it Speyer or Spire? Spire. yeah. S-P-E-Y-E-R. Yeah. Yeah, we ought to get that on the public record.
0: <laughs> Here are a couple of related ones. Um, Tess and Jennings claimed they were trapped on the eighth floor. Have they ever explained why they didn't just use the other stair? Has there ever been any suggestions who the people Barry Jennings was stepping over in Building 7?
2: Uh, On the second question, uh, no. In fact, uh, uh, Jennings said the firefighter who took him through there kept saying to him, don't look down. And he said, I know why he didn't want me to look down, because we were stepping over people. You know we were stepping over people. You, kn- you can tell when you're stepping over people. Now, he never actually used the word bodies, but it was very clear. Uh, he meant those people were dead. They wouldn't just be lying there. <laughs> um, but the BBC tried to make a big deal of this and use it to discredit loose change. Uh, because they got Barry some reason to say uh, that he was unhappy with the Loose change people because they, they, uh, they distorted what he said. He said, they said, I saw dead bodies. I never said I saw dead bodies. And NIST used that to uh, say um, that uh, they were using it to prove their point. Nobody was killed in Building 7. And so, and then he said, you know, loose change claimed otherwise, but Barry Jennings disagrees with them. So they were just quibbling about the word, did he see them? And, uh, you know, and they showed Dylan. I don't know if you know the story on this, and Dylan didn't tell it last night, that he had uh, filmed this to put in loose change, final cut, and then Barry begged him, don't put it in, I'll lose my job. He was already getting some threats about his job uh, because word had leaked out that he had done this interview, and and then it got on the Internet. And uh, so uh, Dylan said that uh, the only reason he ever gave was that he feared to lose his job. But the BBC got him to say, well, he he took it off because uh, he didn't like what they did. And uh, so it was this claim... That they distorted this. And it was just the quibble about the words. Did he see them, or did he just say, I was stepping over bodies, and you can tell? And so when they accused Dylan of this in the BBC show, he played the little tape and showed Barry saying, uh, We were stepping over bodies, uh, over people. You can tell when you're walking over people. And Dylan rightly said, We did not uh, distort, it was the BBC that distorted.
0: You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show: Question and Answer Session with David Ray Griffin on the Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center Seven. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Now I got carried away there, and did I forget the uh, <laughs> main question?
0: Hess and Jennings claimed they were trapped on the eighth floor. Have they ever explained why they didn't just use the other stair? Uh,
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Barry did speak about that. He said (laughs) uh, he went over to the other side of the building, and uh, he said it was totally destroyed. And uh, that would fit if, if, if it was that explosion that caused the big gash, that would fit there, and then something I didn't put in the book, and I just realized uh, last night I should have. Uh, this this guy that was I think one of the firefighters who helped him out of there, he himself said, you know, we came to the north side, and the north side of the building was was destroyed. Well, the north side was completely the opposite side of the building from the 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 twin towers, so debris from them could not have destroyed that part of the building. So there was an enormous amount of destruction in World Trade Center 7 that went on that uh, morning. And so it may be that when they went over there that they couldn't get down the other stairs. And I don't know the, the, uh, the layout of the building enough to know uh, whether it connected in a way that you could get from one stairway to the other. I, I just don't know. But maybe the, the explosions had, uh, had blocked the way. But it was clear from what they said that, um, from their point of view, there was no way out other than waiting for help.
0: There is video footage of Mayor Giuliani on the street in a chaotic scene on nine eleven. Where did he come from, where was he going, and how might this fit into the story of World Trade Center 7?
2: Um, well, what he said was uh, this would have been when he was at the... Uh, a building um, just down the street from World Trade Center Seven, uh, at the Barclay. What's the full name of it? I've forgotten now, but it's the something Barclay. In any case, and this is where he revealed that he he knew about the twin towers coming down. He said, "We were in there, and uh, we got word that uh, the twin towers were going to come down, and they did come down before." We could uh, we could get out of there. Uh, yeah, it's it's number seventy five, Barclay. Thank you. You know, I've written this a dozen times, and I'm just drawing a blank uh, right now. But uh, that seemed to be uh, that that chaotic scene uh, right after he and his people had gotten out of of that building.
0: Do you know of any thermitic materials, chemical compounds, et cetera, discovered at the World Trade Center or the Pentagon explosion sites that have been traced to a particular manufacturer?
2: No. uh, You know, what what they have there are these uh, uh, little red chips. Some of you saw them in the the film last night. And uh, there would be nothing on there, you know, uh, made by Lawrence Livermore. (laughs) These are tiny little uh, pieces. And we don't have enough uh, knowledge about nanothermite to know about maybe different species that would be recognizable coming from uh, different places. So this is something that's so shrouded in mystery. I mean, it's really, really kept uh, secret. As I say, NIST seemed to be trying to pretend like they had never even uh, heard about it. So uh, I doubt if there would be any way to uh, do anything with that. But, but, again, you would have to, you would have to ask uh, uh, one of the scientists that.
0: This is a question about the dust. The girders were melted down, but is there a landfill with the tons of dust? I believe the SEM, EDX, and DSC research by Jones. But it would be great to show every pound has the nanothermite. Is the dust available?
2: I think if you sent a FOIA request for it, it would be declined. <laughs> So um, no, I have no idea if, uh, if they took off uh, truckloads of this and, and kept it somewhere. Uh, I rather doubt it, because it would be very incriminating, just as they got rid of the steel, most of it. Uh, and certainly they got rid of most of it that was incriminating, but they, they did leave a few pieces that were pretty incriminating. Um, you know, and it wasn't only the WPI professors who uh, found it. This Berkeley professor uh, found a piece, too, that had been uh, melted. So they did slip up a little bit, but for the most part they got rid of, I'm sure, almost all of the steel that had obvious signs on it that it had been subjected to explosives. And so they would have known that the dust was... Uh, Uh, full of this stuff. I don't know that they would have known that there had been literally unreacted uh, nanothermite in it, but they would have known that all this other residue was there, Um, you know, and the melted iron and uh, other things. So um, they probably destroyed uh, uh, all of that, except uh, that a few people like uh, Janet and a few other people had the sense to... uh, save some and then we're ready to uh, send it off to some scientists when the time came so um, this is going to make a great movie someday I just don't know I, I can't speak to it
0: please comment on the Van Jones situation one of the things that got him in the most trouble was his signature on a 9-11 truth petition also he said he didn't read the petition he said it didn't reflect his views now or ever
2: uh, well, I have no idea about that. Uh, I did allude to him in my uh, talk, saying that uh, you know the press goes along with the idea of the the, the right wing that uh, anyone who questions the official story about 9/11 is not fit for public service. Now they had some other objections to him too. Uh, this was one of two or three major issues they had to raise about him, but it certainly was an important one. So that's the problem that we face in the country, and it is the fault of the mainstream press, or one might say, the people who control the mainstream press, that they won't report these things. Like, you know, my one book called 9-11 Contradictions, which in many ways is my favorite of my books, um, I've got 25 stories in there of internal contradictions within the official story. There's no theory in the book, so it's not conspiracy theory. It's just saying, well, Cheney says he didn't get down to the bunker until after the Pentagon had been struck, and the 9-11 Commission says, yes, that's right, Mr. Cheney, you didn't get down there until almost 10 o'clock, 9.58, even though uh, Norman Mineta and Richard Clark, and Condoleezza Rice, and Cheney's photographer, all said he had gotten down there much earlier. Norm Minetta says, when I got down there at 9.20, uh, Cheney was already there, and involved in an ongoing uh, conversation that, uh, you know, sort of sounded like confirming a stand-down. He didn't say that, but that's what it sounds like to the rest of us. And so, uh, there you've got an enormous contradiction, you know, you would think, the press would report that. That's just a very interesting story. Or now, and I don't know how many of you know this, uh, about uh, the Barbara Olson calls. Um, you know, the, the calls that Ted Olson uh, said, he got two calls from Barbara that morning from Flight 77. and She was on there, and hijackers had taken over the planes with knives and box cutters. And of all the alleged phone calls from the planes, that was the only one that mentioned box cutters. So you get an idea how important that story is. Everybody in the world knows the hijackers had box cutters. But uh, they ran into a little problem. In 2004, the FBI realized uh, Key Dooney had put out his paper in 2003 explaining that uh, cell phone calls from high-altitude airliners were simply impossible. And uh, the FBI could see, yeah, that's probably right. And uh, so they changed the story. They went back in 2004 and revised all those stories about cell phone calls so that the only two cell phone calls now from all four flights, according to the FBI, are the two that were made when uh, Flight 93 was down to 5,000 feet. That's still pretty high, but you could say, well, maybe they got lucky. so even Dina Burnett's call from Tom, uh, three or four calls, she says, I looked at the caller ID. I recognized his, uh, Tom's cell phone number, so I know he was using his cell phone. Now the FBI says he used a seatback phone. Uh, and they changed this, the amazing story about uh, Amy Sweeney on Flight 11. She made this 12-minute uh, cell phone call, which is, of course, just ridiculous. And um, they made up a cockamamie story in 2004 uh, that uh, explained that, well, she really had uh, borrowed a, uh, you know, a card from a fellow flight attendant and had made a feedback call. And uh, even though there's an affidavit, FBI affidavit, saying from 9-11 itself, saying she had used a cell phone. So they they really uh, went back and changed all those things well, what were they going to do with Barbara Olson? So they say, okay, uh, Ted didn't know. He said, I don't know. She was using a cell phone, uh, seat back phone. I don't know. Uh, but one or the other, because she called me twice, talked to me for a minute each time. and um, But now the FBI realizes, hmm, couldn't have happened. Uh, but then it's revealed in 2006 by people in the 9-11 truth movement that... Boeing 757s made for American did not have seat-back phones, didn't have onboard phones of any sort. So she couldn't have called using a cell phone. She couldn't have called using an onboard phone. So what does the FBI say now in its report? Now, this didn't get public until 2006, and I think they didn't change the Olson story. No, that's right. I know they didn't change the Olson story until later. Um, probably 2006, just maybe before they turned this in, when they had to give evidence to the Musawi trial. And uh, here's what it says. Flight 77, they do mention Barbara Olson, but they say that she attempted one call, but it was unconnected and therefore lasted zero seconds. Now, wouldn't you think this call, which was of all the phone calls reported from the planes, was the most important one? made the biggest impact on America. Those evil Muslims killed sweet Barbara Olson. And that really got people ready for the war on terror and ready to go out and kill Muslims. And a lot of people, you know, volunteered to go in the service because they wanted to go get even. You would think that phone call, which charged up the country so much, now that the FBI, which is part of the Department of Justice, now says that the story told by Ted Olson, who was the Solicitor General for the Department of Justice, those calls never happened, that what he said isn't true. Wouldn't you think the press would report that? They will not even report that, although it's just a fact that this is what the FBI now says. So that's our problem.
0: This is going to be our last question if a million Iraqis have died in revenge for three thousand dead in New York isn't it time to say we've gotten our pound of flesh and go home
2: yeah and then some uh, but also in Afghanistan uh, we've killed or let's put it this way the invasion by America and its allies uh, you know both of them uh, have killed far more than a million people. Uh, this guy named uh, Polya has put out, uh, you know, very careful studies. You know, they're approximations, but he thinks it's more like, more like four million, or maybe more by now, because this was a couple years ago, um, of people who have died because of the invasion. They died because of starvation or not getting water or this or that. Not that we and the Allied forces directly killed them, but they died because of our invasion. And so um, we've got two extremely obscene wars, neither which is justified legally or morally for any reason whatsoever. So yes, absolutely. And that's why I keep working um, so hard to try to let Uh, as many people in America and around the world, and particularly in the countries that are sending uh, NATO troops, to know that the whole thing is based on a lie from the very first day. And so maybe we can bring those wars to a closer end than would have been the case if the 9-11 Truth Movement uh, had not happened. And uh, so I thank all of you for the role you're playing in this process, too. Thank you very much.
0: Let's hear it for Dr. Griffin, who's done more for the 9 11 truth movement than anyone, on all the incredible books he's written and the legitimacy and dignity he's given to the truth movement. You've been listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin taking questions after his keynote address on the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center 7 at the fifth annual 9 11 Film Festival. Dr. Griffin's books on 9/11 are available at www.911truth.org. That's the numbers 911truth.org. We continue with Dr. Peter Phillips, director of Project Censored and professor of sociology at Sonoma State University, speaking on a truth emergency in media coverage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Dr. Peter Phillips.
3: 9-11 has become an American enigma. For many, 9-11 remains a puzzling, inexplicable phenomenon that decries understanding and its complexities and its misinformation. Most people doubt the truth of the 9-11 Commission's report, but many are unable to accept that people inside the government could be so evil as to allow the deaths of 3,000 Americans. In a study published in the Journal of Sociological Inquiry, sociologists from four major research institutions focused on one of the curious aspects of the 2004 presidential election, the strength and resilience of the belief among many Americans that Saddam Hussein was linked to the terrorist attacks of 9-11. The study calls such unsubstantiated beliefs a serious challenge to democracy and how we practice it in America and considers why so many people linked Saddam Hussein to 9-11. Co-author Stephen Hoffman from University of Buffalo said, Our data shows substantial support for cognitive theory known as motivated reasoning, which suggests that rather than search rationally for information that either confirms or disconfirms a particular belief, people actually seek out information that confirms what they already believe. In fact, the study reports that for the most part, people completely ignore contrary information. Many of you have had that experience trying to explain to somebody some aspect of 9-11. The argument here is that people get deeply attached to their beliefs. Over the course of the 2004 presidential campaign, several polls showed majority of respondents believed that Saddam Hussein was either partially or largely responsible for the 9-11 attacks, A percent that declined very slowly, dipping below 50% early in 2003. The research concludes that people deeply hold on to their beliefs and they form emotional attachments that get wrapped up in their personal identity, their sense of morality, irrespective of the facts of the matter. So given that many people in the U.S. believe that we are the world's best democracy and tend to seek self-serving justifications for wars and actions by our government that might challenge this idea, at present it is cognitively unlikely for many to consider that 9-11 was an inside job, or that our government allowed 9-11 to happen. People can and do change their minds, and this often will only happen when repeated, continuing factual information becomes available from multiple sources. But Glenn Beck said on national television that 9-11 truthers were happy about the killings at the Holocaust Museum and labeled us hate mongers statement while completely without factual merit reinforces an emotional misinformation held by many people. These lies make it even more difficult for truth-tellers to effectively change minds. So what are the strategies that we need to build to convince people the validity of our factual research on 9-11? First we need to be aware that conspiracies tend to be actions by small groups of individuals rather than massive collective plots by governments and corporations. However, small groups can be dangerous, especially when the individuals have significant power in huge public or private bureaucracies. The Manhattan Project aside, it is very unlikely that conspiracies can be interlinked in a macro way, bridging the gaps between dozens of corporations and government bureaucracies. There's just too many opportunities for leaks and exposure. Nonetheless, small groups of people, like corporate boards of directors, do meet in closed rooms, to plan how to best to maximize their profits. If they knowingly make plans that hurt others, violate laws, undermine ethics, or show favoritism to friends, they are involved in a conspiracy. Conspiracies exist everywhere, and yes, people do sit in rooms and conspire all the time. Microplots may well be the answer to some of the famous conspiracies. However, without accurate, thorough investigations, we can only stew on our own distrust. Critical thinking, accurate, transparent, investigative research are needed to counter the emotional fraud and propaganda of speculative ideas, fear-mongering, and groupthink. Secondly, we need to understand that 9-11 truth critics do not operate in a rational manner. The first thing that critics of investigations on 9-11 do is link all the questions, including some of the most harebrained ideas together into a crazy hodgepodge of irrationalities that undermine legitimate investigations. There's often a series of logical fallacies used by critics of controversial issues, including personal Ad Hanuman attacks, red herring, straw person distractions, and false dilemmas. Because many people are taken in or confused by these irrationalities, most journalists are fearful of being labeled conspiracy theorists to protect their careers, especially those in corporate media, will steer their inquiries to safer stories. For example, in 2007, Project Censored covered research on the events of 9-11, studied by Brigham Young University professor Stephen E. Jones. Jones concluded that the official explanation for the collapse of the World Trade Center building was implausible according to the laws of physics. Jones called for an independent international scientific investigation guided not by politicized notions and constraints, but rather by observation and calculations. David Ray Griffin has just completed a new book on this subject. To study his theory, Jones and eight other scientists conducted chemical research on the dust from the World Trade Centers, and their results were published in a scientific peer-reviewed journal, the Open Chemical Physics Journal, volume two in 2009. Research entitled Active Thermite Material Discovered in Dust from World Trade Center In the abstract, the authors write, we have discovered distinctive red chips in all the samples. The red portion of these chips is found to be unreacted thermitic material and highly energetic. Thermite is a pyrotechnic composition of metal powders which produces a thermite reaction and used in controlled demolitions of buildings. They don't say how it got there, and we don't know, but they say that scientifically, the proof is that it is in the dust. Additionally, Richard Gage, founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, has to date amassed nearly 700 professionals in the field of architecture, engineering, and physics who have signed a petition calling for new investigations in the events of 9-11. Jones and Gage's empirical research, suggesting the possibility of controlled demolition, has moved many thousands of us to question other events around 9-11. These factual arguments clearly establish the possibility of controlled demolition of the World Trade Center buildings on September 11th, yet there is almost zero coverage in the corporate media in the United States. This is a top-down corporate censorship, pure and simple, for even if other scientists could be found to disagree with the study, the policy of ignoring the topic inside the corporate media is relatively absolute. It seems unlikely that corporate journalists are unaware of the research, as it is listed in hundreds of websites worldwide. Perhaps the mainstream science journalists leave their critical thinking skills at home or give the scientific method the day off. Or perhaps the real conspiracy exists within the boardrooms of corporate mainstream media. The corporate media in the United States ignores many valid news stories based on university research. As certain topics are simply forbidden inside the corporate media structure. To openly cover these news stories would stir up questions regarding inconvenient truths that many in the U.S. power structure want to avoid. For example, current research indicates the public schools of the United States are more segregated today than they were four decades ago. According to a new civil rights report published at UCLA, public schools in the U.S. are 44% non-white, and the minorities are emerging as the majority of public schools in the U.S., Latinos and Blacks, the two largest minority groups, attend schools more segregated today than their grandparents and their parents 40 years ago. Millions of non-white students are locked into dropout factories, high schools, where high percentages do not graduate. The most serious segregation in public schools is in the western United States, including California. Not in the South, as many people believe. Most non-white schools are segregated by poverty as well as race. Schools in low-income communities remain highly unequal in terms of funding, qualified teachers, and curriculum. Other taboo stories include the civilian death rates in Iraq. Researchers from John Hopkins University and a professional survey company in Great Britain, Opinion Research Business, report the United States is directly responsible for the deaths of over 1 million Iraqi civilians. In January of 2008, ORB reported that survey work confirms our estimate that over one million Iraqi citizens have died as a result of the conflict, which started in 2003. The estimated number of deaths at that time in August of 2007 was a We're now likely over 1.2 million. And the John Hopkins study from 2006 says that at least a third of these were caused by U.S. aerial bombing and over half of all deaths were directly attributed to U.S. forces. That is not in the news. So each of these stories, our 9-11 research, the civil rights story, civilian deaths in Iraq, are all based on scholarly work, on research. These stories represent the failure of the corporate America to keep the American people democratically informed on important issues. This lack of coverage of critical and potentially political news stories is what many thousands of people in the U.S. now calling a truth emergency. Truth emergency is predicated on the inability of many to distinguish between what is real and what is not. Corporate media, Fox in particular, offers news that creates a hyper-reality of real-world problems. Consumers of corporate television, especially those whose understandings are framed primarily from that medium alone, are embedded in a state of excited delirium, of knowinglessness. If we place our 9-11 truth research in a broader frame of this truth emergency, we think we stand a better chance of reaching people in a more holistic way. 9-11 research is anti-war and part of the peace movement. 9-11 research is pro-media freedom, supporting full government transparency, and as such we are part of the media reform movement. 9-11 research supports equality and civil rights. 9-11 research is very closely akin to election reform. We must seek movement partners in our truth emergency and openly support truth research in all its forms. To counter knowinglessness, progressive activists need to include 9-11 truth and many other issues as important elements of radical progressive political efforts. We must not be afraid of corporate media labeling and instead build truth from the bottom up. Critical thinking, fact-finding are the basis of democracy. and We must stand for the maximization of informed participatory democracy at the lowest levels in society. We will continue to openly discuss, research, and validate our issues. And as 9-11 truth activists, we see ourselves in an important component of building a new non-exploitive world Based on democracy, openness, and human rights. Thank you. Something yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with God over
0: there. You've been listening to Dr. Peter Phillips speaking at the fifth annual 9-11 Film Festival on A Truth Emergency in Media Coverage. Dr. Phillips is the Director of Project Censored and Professor of Sociology at Sonoma State University. Visit Project Censored's website at www.projectcensored.org. That's projectcensored.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L. KNER at yahoo.com or call 510 848 6767 extension 628. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction.
1: Evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall. Because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout. A sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself